Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is science on your radio for another half an hour. You have Chris and Stu in the studio today. Uh, yes, my name is Chris. And today I have a story about stardust and solid smoke. Stardust and solid smoke. Yes, stardust Not and the Neil Gaiman smoke. book, Stardust. No, no, not... No, the, actual, not. the actual stuff that's in between stars. And two, two meanings thereof, um, a space probe called Stardust and the actual Stardust that drifts between stars and how it, it was, it's been caught using solid smoke. Um, you will find out what that is in a few minutes, no doubt. Stu, what have you got to entertain us today? Well, I was lucky enough, uh, Science Week's over now, um, but I was lucky enough to catch a visiting scientist from the UK, uh, Dr. Maggie Adarin Pocock, Mm -hmm. who is, she's actually taken over from Sir Patrick Moore as the host of uh, The Sky at Night, which is a long-running British astronomy program. Um, But yeah, I caught up with her and talked to her about her research and why she became a scientist and um, talked about children's television and how inspiring that can be and Great. all sorts of things. She did get awarded an MBE for services to education and science. So. We, we do like that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, you will find out about her also in a few minutes. So on with the show. Okay. Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science. Now, you may have seen some pictures recently on the internet um, from the Rosetta spacecraft, which is orbiting Comet 67P churyumov gerasimenko uh, pictures of the comet blasting out jets of water. Have you seen those? Oh, yeah, yeah, I have seen. That's the one that the lander actually landed on, that yes, comet. Yes, yeah. yeah, so the Philae lander landed on it, and um, but the Rosetta... Is um, still orbiting or, the is comet. Orbiting it, yeah. Right. And so there's something like you see 300 litres of water being ejected every second. Uh, the comet is actually losing 26 million kilograms per day during this time. That is getting close to the sun as stuff in these, these water jets blast off. That's what that's what you call rapid weight loss. It is. It is. <laughs> it's, it's losing also 86 million kilograms of dust as well um, at the same time. Wow. Yeah. And you've seen like boulders blow off and, and this sort of thing. So it's pretty substantial. But I guess it's a fairly big lump of rock and ice. Mm. So it can last a while, but um, it is quite surprising how much it's blowing off. Anyway, as but as you mentioned, Stu, the um, the the Philae lander uh, landed on the comet as well. That's kind of a bit of a bouncy landing. Um, has been sort of intermittent contact back with Earth when it can get a good signal and mm. get um, sunlight for the parrot solar panels. But we've had some analysis from the lander, which of course was sent to analyse what the composition of the comet or the cometary nucleus, as that is known, uh, and it found. You know, things like water, obviously, because we're seeing water blasting off and found carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide. Uh, those are kind of the big ones that are expected. Yep. Also found other organic molecules that are the, the basic building blocks of things like sugars and, and proteins and that kind of stuff. Right. And that and that, this is all just part of the comet sort of all stuck together. Yeah, as they found on the on the comet there. But this is it's interestingly that this is not the first time that we have examined samples from a, a comet. 
and in fact, in 2004, there were samples that were collected and returned to Earth. Right. So this is this is like on-the-spot analysis that's just this is, sending data back. Yeah, there, I think there are two two um, instruments, two separate instruments on the on the lander that are doing analysis. One is, I think, on top of it. One is on the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. So they're actually getting slightly different things that they're seeing. Uh, but yeah, so that is doing analysis in situ. Um, but we have collected stuff and brought it back, which is quite a feat when you think about it. When I say we, human race. Yeah. You mean you mean science in general? Science has done it. Yes. So yeah, this is NASA's Stardust probe, which was launched in 1999, rendezvoused with Comet Wild 2, it's called, in 2004. Uh, and it was sent up to catch dust from the, the comet's tail or its coma, yep. which is kind of the, the halo around the comet, um, using a substance called aerogel. Have you heard of aerogel? No, but it sounds like something you'd put in your running shoes or, you know. Uh, You could well find it in your running shoes one day. Uh, I saw a sample of aerogel recently um, when I visited the Canberra Deep Space Communication Complex at Tidvin Villa. Okay. And this is the kind of their deep space tracking station where they have these big dishes that communicate with all these space probes. Mm. So like, for instance, the um, the New Horizons probe, which visited Pluto recently, they were one of the, the stations that tracked that and communicated that when it was out of view of other kind of NASA And picked dishes. up telemetry and all that stuff. Yeah, that sort of thing. Um, they've also got a great display of space memorabilia and things about all their probes and stuff. They, you know, they've got moon landing suits and they've got astronaut meals and, and this kind of stuff. Um, but one of my favourite... Isn't, favorite... isn't that just space food sticks and tang? <sighs> it, was, it was some pretty <laughs> disgusting looking brown goo in, in tubes. I in tell tubes, you what. yeah. yeah. Um, but they had a, a, um, they had a sample of this aerogel stuff. And it was one of my favourite displays because it really is... It's called in it's nicknamed solid smoke and that's what it looks like. It looks like this little square of stuff that is it's kind of translucent and looks ethereal like it's not quite there. It looks like so, so um smoke but it's in a, a rectangular block. So you can see through it sort of. Yeah, kind of. It's so it's so ethereal. So what it is, it's actually um it's made from a gel. So a gel is uh you'd be familiar with gels from your your toothpaste and your yeah, other yeah. things like that. It's a gel is kind of a combination of solid and liquid. So there's sort of a solid network a kind of a So like an emulsion sort of. Well, it's sort of more like the solid traps liquid inside it. So the liquid is kind of little little tiny microscopic droplets that are kind of trapped between the, a network of, of the solid. Mm-hmm. And so it can kind of, it kind of oozes, it doesn't really flow. So it's sort of more towards, the gel is technically more towards the solid side of things, but because it's got the gel, the liquid in it, it's kind of got that, well. Somewhere in between. It's hard to use, describe without using the term gelatinous and, and gel-like. <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, so aerogel um, is made by supercritical drying of a gel. So basically what they do is they remove all the liquid without damaging the solid part. So you're just left with the solid part and with, with gas taking the place of the liquid. Right. So that's how it gets to be this light kind of almost not there substance. So it is it's incredibly light. Um, and it's but it's also it can be quite strong. There are photos you can see of it on the on the interweb where you can see it's like a brick floating on top well not floating, but sitting on top of a lump of aerogel and it's like it's on nothing, just about. Um, but it is supporting the weight of the it brick. Is it doesn't, of the brick, doesn't yeah. collapse. It's also a fantastic insulator. Um, so it turns out there's this effect, I think it's called the Knudsen effect, where that these little tiny pockets of air that are trapped in it, um, they're so small that they actually are much better insulators than just 
free air on its own. So air can con- has a certain thermal conductivity. When you separate the little pockets of air, it um, drastically reduces its its conductivity. So, so there's like, very, li- very little heat flow between the little yeah, pockets. Yeah, it's something like five times better insulated than just plain air. And so you All can right. see you can see pictures also of say a piece of aerogel which is so light it's balanced on top of a, a flame of a Bunsen burner, and then on top of that they put things like a flower or some crayons or something that are unharmed by the flame because it's insulated by the heat, but it's also being held up by the the heat of the wow. flame. Wow! So it's pretty impressive stuff. Um, so it's, it's got a few little applications. Of course, being a good insulator, there's people trying to use it in insulation. Um, it's maybe not going to be the perfect wonder material that everything will be made of in future because nothing is 100% safe. I try mm. to look up the safety, and apparently um, it can, you can get kind of a silicate dust from it because it's made of right. um, silicate sort of things, which can then lead to lung problems, so sil- disease, lung disease yeah. called silicosis. So, yeah, don't breathe it in, I guess, is the thing, like when it's ground up into dust. But, yeah, no, it's pretty impressive stuff. Um, and because it's so light and porous, it was then used. They had a kind of a, a kind of grid of aerogel. So they sent up with this Stardust probe to catch samples of dust. Uh, and so when they when it returned to Earth, it returned to Earth in two thousand six. Um, it entered the atmosphere at Mach thirty six, twelve point nine kilometers per second. It was the fastest re-entry ever from a man-made object because of course so, it had to be going fast enough to catch a comet. Yeah, yeah. And and Mach thirty six is thirty six times the speed of sound, yeah, right? Yeah, that's yeah, pretty fast. Um, but it slowed down very quickly and then parachuted <laughs> to, to Utah. Then they extracted the dust from the aerogel. Well, they extracted the aerogel and they they looked under a microscope to look for the dust that left. Trails, tracks in it. And they found the kind of, same kind of stuff that we're getting now from um, Philae and Rosetta. So there was you know, these organic compounds, um, even things like amino acid glycine was found, right. which is quite impressive. And there's also some silicate rocks like olivine and pyroxene, which is the kind of rocks you'll also find on Earth. So it shows you know, there's a sort of same kind of chemistry going same, on there. Same components going yeah. to building comets yeah. that go into building planets. There's also surprisingly some iron and copper sulfide minerals that only form with the presence of liquid water. So it shows that occasionally the comets must get warm enough to melt. Without losing all of that water as well. With, without it That's evaporating. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But this wasn't all it found because they were also hoping that they would catch some interstellar dust or cosmic dust as it's known. This is the right. this is the stardust. Um, so this is stuff from, that's from outside our solar system. Uh, now, they, what they did is they used a citizen science project called Stardust at Home um, to look for this. Basically, they've got specially vetted volunteers to examine the the microscopic images. So they had about, about a million tracks of dust through this aerogel, and they had to search through them to find the um, the tracks that were possibly from interstellar dust. And they are usually because they were going faster, and so they were going deeper into the aerogel. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were moving much faster. Um, the first possible interstellar particle was found by a volunteer called Bruce Hudson. Since then, they've had six more identified for a total of seven possible interstellar dust candidates out of a million that they examined. So wow. that was It was a painstaking job. Um, but it was... Um, they haven't found anything consistent out of that. So all these all these pieces of interstellar dust have completely different chemical compositions, and they have some of them have unusual crystal structures as well, which kind of indicates that they've they've formed at different places mm. in in space. You know, different nebulae, different sources in the in the galaxy, which is not that surprising, I guess, if they're coming from outside the solar system. Yeah. But it gave an indication that conditions in other solar systems or elsewhere are different to what we have in our solar system. So when we examine comets generally and these things like that, we find stuff very similar to what we have on Earth. Yep. When we examine stuff from outside the solar system, it's very different, which is kind of – sounds 
not unexpected, but it also gives an indication that yeah, there could be quite a diverse galaxy. Well, out there. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of exciting if we if we found that it was all the same as what we've got here, it would be oh well, everything yeah. everything's the same everywhere you go. Exactly, um, yeah. but that's obviously not the case, which yeah. is kind of exciting. It is kind of exciting. So yeah, it is interesting news. The first kind of samples, perhaps from outside the solar system, that have been verified. Um, we're gradually getting out there, I guess. Uh, in the meantime, of course, the um, yes, Philae and Rosetta are still orbiting Comet 67P. Philae, I think, is very nearly done. We're not going to hear too much more from that, I think. Well, probably a bit more. Rosetta itself um, is going to keep orbiting the comet until September 2016, I think, when they intend to crash it into the nucleus. Um, so a spectacular they're going to do that on purpose yeah yeah. or it's just I think designed it's that, that's what it's they're going to do that. They're gonna, they said the flight controls will steer it in okay um, so yeah just for fun or well, maybe just to see what it <laughs> knocks see what up happens. yeah see what happens <laughs> anyway so that'll be the end of that that valiant little craft oh well it's done a good job it has Our next guest, Maggie Adairn Pocock, is well known in Britain for hosting the long-running astronomy program, The Sky at Night, having presented well-received specials like Do We Really Need the Moon?, which is a good question, uh, for the BBC. She's also a research fellow at University College London in the Department of Science and Technology Studies and an honorary research associate in UCL Department of Physics and Astronomy. And she's currently in Australia as part of the Sydney Science Festival for National Science Week. Maggie, thanks for joining us on Lost in Science. Lovely to be here. Thank you very much. Now, I'm going to ask you about the sky at night. But first of all, I have to ask, because I ask everyone, um, because everyone has a different story. But at what point in your life did you realise you wanted to study science? Well, for me, it happened really young. I'd say sort of age two or three. Wow. How did you know about science at the age of two or three? Well, because I used to watch a television program called The Clangers, which was sort of a cartoon program about sort of little animals that lived in space. Little, little like, knitted mice that lived on a moon. That's it, The Clangers. I, I love them. I still do. <laughs> And uh, but also um, I found out that it's sort of um, um, it was um, rocket scientists and space scientists that got people into space. So then and there I decided I wanted to go visit the Clangers, and so I had to become a scientist. <laughs> well, at, that's at least you can recognise at that that early age that that you had a goal to work towards. Um, and, yeah, that's been lovely for me having that dream. Now, most careers in science are pretty varied, and you completed a doctoral thesis twenty years ago. Can you explain what you actually looked at for that? Because I read briefly what it was about, and I um, would like to hear from you what you actually studied. Uh, yes. So for my PhD, I was using sort of an optical technique called interferometry to measure very, very thin films of oil in a high-pressure contact. So... Um, when a car engine starts up, um, the worst thing that can happen is um, if there's no lubrication on the engine, you get metal-to-metal contact, and then you get sort of fretting, so little bits of metal sort of flake off the engine, and that's not good for the engine in the long run. So what we were doing is we were um, looking at the additives you could add to engine oils, so that even when the engine is stationary, you still have a sort of a coating of lubricant over um, the engine. 
Uh, but the thing is, these casings of lubricant are sort of down to sort of uh, 10 nanometers, 5 nanometers. So, ah, uh, nanometer. So that's sort of 10 to the minus 9 meters. Uh, so a thousand, thousand, thousand. So, um, yeah, a billionth of a meter. And so we were using interferometry, sort of this optical technique, to actually measure down to these very, very thin films and actually work out what's happening in these high-pressure contacts. Right. That makes a lot more sense than, than the title <laughs> gave, gives away. Um, yes. <laughs> now, I also uh, read that you worked for the Ministry of Defence in the UK uh, after you'd finished your uh, PhD. Um, can, without res- revealing any classified information... Can you tell us what you were doing for them? Uh, yes. Um, 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 for the MOD, this is actually the scientific branch of the um, MOD. Okay. And, yeah, and uh, so, um, I was actually working on two things. The first one was a missile warning system. And this sort of acts, um, if um, a pilot is flying along and the missile is launched, the pilot has a certain amount of time to react. And um, uh, she can sort of uh, um, send out uh, countermeasures, sort of these uh, pyrotechnic flares, mm-hmm. and the um, heat-seeking missile will automatically go to the flare. But the problem is that um, if they don't realise in time that um, um, the um, um, missile is coming, um, of course they're in jeopardy. So what we were developing was a um, warning system which was looking at UV, um, infrared, and also visible light and actually tell someone that um, um, a missile was coming and then automatically um, uh, set off the flares that would protect them. And and to do this job, I I actually came out to Woomera and we were doing some testing in in the Woomera Desert, which was fantastic for me. It's it's an amazing place to visit, yeah. Uh, Yes. Because um, it was very dry, and actually all our um, equipment was um, fighting the 40-degree heat, pretty hard work, and also the <laughs> sand was getting into all the cameras. But um, I, I, sort of, um, I made some friends with some guys in the Australian Air Force, and they took me up in their helicopter. So, <laughs> so I had a fantastic time. <laughs> got, a, got a great view out, out there as well. Actually, actually, it was the first time, because I was brought up in London and sort of lived in big cities all my life, and it was the first time I actually saw the curvature of the Earth, and I thought that was amazing. <laughs> Yeah, I think in Australia we have a we have a, a a different view of how much a lot of open space can actually mean. Yeah, it was on a scale that I had never encountered before. Yeah. Now, um, after working for the MOD, you moved back to optics and astronomy. Was that was that always your plan? Were you always sort of attracted back to that field? Uh, yes. Um, when I was uh, 13, 14, uh, one of the things I did while I was at school is I made my own telescope. So I actually ground and polished my own mirror. And um, I found that fascinating. So I was always fascinated uh, by optics. And I started sort of specialising it uh, in my uh, first degree. But I was using it uh, for my PhD. And so, um, uh, but doing the, sort of the telescope work was, um, was always my goal. Or the space telescope work was the ultimate goal. So I went with a ground-based telescope, uh, telescopy. But it was fantastic. But I went to work out at the German telescope in South America, one of the largest telescopes in the world, and that was mind-boggling. It was truly fantastic. Yeah, well, I mean, speaking of the Woomera, we get pretty good uh, good views of the night sky out there too, so it's, um, we're, we're lucky in that way. We don't have the light pollution that you have to put up with in Europe either. No, but you see, you're doubly lucky because you've got these fantastic sites that are relatively close by. But also, um, from the um, aspect of the southern hemisphere, you're looking into the heart of the Milky Way. So, um, all you see, you see so many more stars than we do in the north. So, and that's why many of the, um, the very large telescopes are, are built in, in locations in the southern hemisphere because you really do get the glorious view of our galaxy. Yeah, well, we're lucky in that way. Um, <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> 
Now, uh, you, you've also moved from research into science communication. Now, how did you how did you actually make that transition from from being a research scientist to being a science communicator? Well, actually, because um, they overlapped for quite a while, and um, I was having a, a challenge because I was working as a space scientist on some some really amazing projects, sort of projects looking at climate change, sort of Earth observation, also things like the James Webb Space Telescope, the sort of um, uh, um, the telescope that's um, uh, going to take over from the Hubble Space Telescope. And what I didn't, what I couldn't understand is I couldn't recruit anyone, so I was working as a project manager, looking to sort of expand my team. I put adverts in the paper and sort of in the local journals, but I couldn't recruit anyone. And I was thinking, this is bizarre. You know, I'm working as a space scientist. That's a pretty cool title. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't understand, yeah, why I couldn't get anyone. So I decided it was sort of a PR job, and I had to go out and sell science to people because I think that's one of the challenges. Um, if, you, um, uh, if you meet a doctor, you have a good understanding of what a medical doctor does. If you meet an accountant, you have a good understanding of what they're likely to do. But if you meet a physicist, they could be working in the city, they could be doing um, sort of medical research, they could be doing all sorts of things. So I thought I was going to just go out and tell people just some of the things I've done in my career and try and encourage more people to consider careers in, in physics and in science. Uh, so that's how I, I got involved. I started going out and mainly speaking to school kids, but especially to school girls, because I wanted to show them that you know, um, uh, being a, a, sort of a woman in science was quite a natural thing to do and incredibly enjoyable. In late 2013, you took over as the host of The Sky at Night. Um, which is so famous that even I knew about Sir Patrick Moore in Australia as a child. Even though it was never shown here, I actually picked up who he was from a TV show called The Goodies, which was repeated and repeated and repeated as, as when I was a child. So Patrick Moore to me was a guy in a bunny suit with a telescope um, and, you know, commenting on the goodies flying to the moon because their rabbits had escaped and all these all these bizarre things. But he used to always appear as himself, so he always had a good sense of humour. <laughs> yes. But uh, he, he, must, he must... It must seem like um, big shoes to fill. How does it feel taking over a role from someone who actually still holds the Guinness World Record for the most prolific TV presenter ever? How does it feel filling those shoes? Daunting to say the least. <laughs> I remember in the very first episode I did, it was a little, little like I sort of seeing a rabbit in the headlights. I was sort of slightly stunned. Um, I used to watch um, The Sky at Night as a child in the UK, and I loved it. And it would tell me about the night sky, and I wouldn't be, always be able to see the things that they were talking about because I lived in London. Mm. But I always would go out and suddenly you know, strain my eyes and try and see what was going on. And so I grew up with The Sky at Night, and it was sort of part of me becoming a space scientist was watching The Sky at Night. And so to be offered the job was mind-boggling. And it was, of course, the first thing I said is yes, but then I thought, oh my goodness, you know, those are very big shoes to fill. Um, but um, it, it was an amazing honour to be offered it. And uh, um, I, I think one of the things that um, Patrick and I had in common is a real love for the subject. And um, um, my goal in life is to try and get that love um, out there and uh, that passion to as many people as possible. Well, uh, yeah, the the um, the original program. I mean, it's been running since 1957. Yes. Uh, are you planning to stick around for another 50 <laughs> years? 
Trip's record was, I mean, um, I don't think anyone could do it these days, because he he, um, he was the presenter for the programme for the, for 57 years, yeah. uh, and he only missed one episode, and that was due to chronic gastric flu. And so it's on once a month, so he did it every uh, every month uh, for 57 years. And I'd love to have a record like that. Um, I, I don't know if I'll last that long, but I'd, I'd love it if I could. Um, now... You are still doing research, I take it. What are you What are you researching at the moment? Yes. So um, I don't do as much research as I did um, before because um, I was doing uh, scientific research. I was um, um, doing science communication, and then I had my daughter, so who's five years old, and so juggling all through all three proved to be quite difficult. But now that she's started at school, I'm looking at a number of different projects. And there's a, a lunar project which hopes to send a probe uh, to the moon and then dig below the surface and just see what's, uh, what's down there. So I'm getting sort of involved in that. And also, uh, the Square Kilometre Array, I'm looking to sort of be a consultant on, on one of the projects associated with that. So there's sort of a, quite a few things going on. I'm, I'm still doing a lot of science communication, but yes, I'm, I'm trying to get back into the sort of science, scientific research now, now that my daughter's a little older. And, and hopefully if you're working on the uh, the Square Kilometre Array, you'll get some trips to Australia again. Yeah, regular trips to Australia would be very, very nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, one, one other question I'd like to ask people is, what's the most exciting thing happening in science now or, or, in, the, or in the near future? Um, to me, I've been involved in quite a few, um, um, actually I've been reporting on quite a few missions, like the mission to Pluto, the New Horizons mission. Uh, I, I was out in um, uh, um, uh, in Washington uh, while that was happening, and then last year the Rosetta mission, so that was all fantastic. But the thing that really gets me buzzing at the moment is um, exoplanets. Because to date, and we've discovered these sort of planets are going around other stars, which to me is fantastic. But now we're doing even more. So not only are we detecting the planets, but we're now analysing the atmospheres of these planets. Now, to me, this sounds like an impossibility. And we can just about make out the star. We can detect the planet um, uh, going uh, in orbit around the star by looking at the star's wobble. But now we actually want to look at the sort of the very fine atmosphere around a planet, which we can't actually see. Um, but um, with spectroscopy, which is uh, something that I've done in the past, um, we can actually compare the starlight um, without the planet and the starlight with the planet and actually get an indication of what chemicals are in the atmosphere of that planet. Um, and also we're launching a number of space probes which are detecting more and more of these exoplanets. So to me, this is just an incredibly exciting time. And as, our, as we get better resolution and better sensitivity, we'll be able to detect the atmospheres of more and more of these exoplanets. To me, that is just phenomenal. Yeah, that that's pretty exciting stuff to be able to see to to be able to see what what the atmosphere on a on a planet you know light years away is actually made of is pretty amazing. Yeah, it's, it's pretty mind boggling. I, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, one last final question is: Do you still want to go into space? Very, very, very much so. Although I have tempered um, uh, my um, response because I mean, a few years ago, if someone had come and given me a ticket and said, OK, Maggie, um, the space shuttle's waiting for you, off you go, <laughs> I would have run. But I've got a five-year-old daughter now, so I'm slightly more tethered to Earth. I would have always taken my husband with me, you see, because 
I was going oh to say, daughter... I was going to say, now you need two tickets, or is that the problem? Well, <laughs> actually, <laughs> three because we all have we to go. We all have to go. Yeah, that's it. And I have to wait till my daughter's a little older because I think taking her out into space now is um, uh, not quite right. But um, she says um, at the moment that she wants to be a space artist. So we're both going to go out into space. Now I'm going to do the science, and she's going to do the art. So um, uh, that, that's the plan for the future. They they do complement each other. Well, they do very much so. Um, I, I thank you for joining us on Lost in Science, um, Maggie Adderin Pocock, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your time in Australia. And thank you for your time. Oh, it's been my absolute pleasure. And um, yeah, I think Lost in Science is a fantastic title. <laughs> I think I've been lost in science for many years. Yeah, so have we. So have we. <laughs> Thanks again. Thank you. Okay, that's it for another episode of Lost in Science. It is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and airs across Australia the Community Radio Network with the generous support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook or you can find us on Twitter. And, of course, you can listen to us on the radio same time next week. And once again, Chris, Manisha, Claire and Stu will get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.